we are in Mark chapter 5 tonight. Um, I realize that skipping ahead a little bit. My goal is basically to hit some of the highlights from the first eight chapters this fall and um, the last eight chapters in the spring, probably, So, uh, and Lord willing. So I can't cover every text. We were in chapter 2 last week. Chapter 3, uh, or yeah, we could go. Chapter 2, last time we were together, was the calling of Levi and the confrontation with the religious leaders of his day. Jesus uh, was engaged in a lot of controversy. Chapter 3 is a, a continuation of those controversies as he confronts the self-righteousness, the arrogance of the religious leaders of his day. Chapter 4 is, a whole, is mostly about parables. And we did parables a year ago, and we're not, I think, going to cover any parables uh, this year. Um, and that's just because we, we kind of hit the highlights um, a year ago. And so we're going to sort of skip those as we pick and choose some material. Chapter 5 then, verses 1 through 20, uh, is uh, a um, story of a man whose life is changed as he encounters Jesus. And we're going to read the whole story, but we're going to focus on just the last few verses and look at the subject of the gospel and evangelism. Okay? Um, kind of how this man responds to what Jesus does for him and the instruction Jesus gives to this man about how he should respond. So let me invite you to pay attention to and consider how you respond to the gospel. From Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces, so no one had the strength to, to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. They, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. I pray that you would take your word, you would drive it home to our hearts, that you would, especially as we consider um, what you tell this man and what you would have us do, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage, that you would uh, give us joy in the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is RUF? What is a church? It's a people gathered around good news. And one of the goals of RUF is to see uh, Jesus uh, reach our community, uh, to see people encounter Jesus, to see ourselves encounter Jesus in such a way that we know that he's good and, and in such a way that we want others to know his goodness. And Jesus reaches people in our community through people. He doesn't just zap people out of nowhere. He ordinarily reaches others through people who've already been reached. And this is a passage about, therefore, evangelism. I think uh, one of the great uh, signs that you understand the gospel is that you want others to understand the gospel. Uh, You've heard this story before, perhaps. I think I stole it from Ricky Jones about the medical missionary who went to China. And his first patient was blind with cataracts. And he does this little procedure on his eyes and he gives him back his sight. And that man who had been blind for years could now see. And the guy leaves him and he disappears for months. But then he comes back to the town and to the doctor and he comes back holding a rope. And on that rope, he's got 48 other blind people holding onto the rope, bringing these blind people to the man who had given him eyes to see. Come meet a man who helped me see. And they did. And, uh, don't you want to be useful to Jesus like that? Um, like the man in this story who had mercy, who had who'd received mercy, who had learned that though Satan is cruel, he'd, he'd been possessed by evil. Though Satan is cruel, Jesus is compassionate and Jesus is more powerful than Satan. And he sets people free. And the man then says, what can I do? How can I serve you? I want to be with you. Um, That's what we mean. Now, when we talk about evangelism, everybody freaks out. I I get chills (laughs) at the thought, right? Um, This sermon is not designed to make you panic. And it's not designed to make you feel guilty about the little evangelism you have ever done in your life. We're not about guilt manipulating here to get you, to arm twist you into doing something you don't want to do. That's not what we believe in. Okay, I I think a better picture of evangelism is, again, to take Brooklyn's pastor's illustration, uh, Ricky Jones. A better picture of evangelism is a pool party. You've attended these, right? Everybody's a little self-conscious Nobody wants to get in the water. And then a bunch of guys start goofing around and they start throwing each other in. And then the guys are in the pool. And the girls are kind of all hovering around, you know, dipping their toes in. I don't know if I want to get in. And until one of the boys gets up and he throws his sister in the pool because he can get away with that. 
right? And he's just mean. Then she squeals and, and she goes and they drag a couple other more friends. And then everybody's, then, then all the girls start leaving in the pool. Then everybody in the pool is having a great time and new people show up at the party and they get in the pool because it looks like fun because it's, it's where everybody is and we're having a good time. That's the kind of community that the gospel creates. We're glad to be part of the community that Jesus has created. And we're experiencing life for the first time. Joy for the first time. True intimacy with one another. Real community where you can spill your guts and people won't hate you and reject you and despise you or look down at you. And you've begun to taste life. And others are drawn. And you're interested in others being Draw. That's a better picture. We're not trying to get you to do anything you're not interested in doing. But I want you to just be so thrilled with the gospel that it would be in your heart to see this happen. And so I want to talk about the priority of evangelism, the place of evangelism. I want to talk about the message of evangelism and the success of evangelism. Just from the last few verses here. Go all the way down to verse 18. Um, what happens right after Jesus rescues this man? Uh, as Jesus is getting into the boat... The man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might be with Jesus. Okay, so there's priority going on here. And what's the priority? The priority isn't evangelism. The priority is actually worship. It's actually, I want to be with you, Jesus. I want to know you, Jesus. I want to walk, I want want you to bless me, Jesus. That's this guy's first priority. And and, um, evangelism will never happen. If that doesn't come first, um, John Piper's famous for saying uh, evangelism exists because worship doesn't or missions exists because worship doesn't. In other words, evangelism isn't the end goal. Missions is not the end goal. The end goal is to see people become God worshipers. Right. Um, But we might say it the other way. Missions won't exist and evangelism won't exist if worship doesn't. If your heart doesn't want to be near Jesus, it's not going to be interested in seeing others near Jesus. And this guy values and treasures Jesus first. And so he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. Um, That's that's vital to see. If the gospel hasn't gripped your heart, no amount of cajoling on my part or manipulating you on my part or getting you to do what you don't want to do will get you to want others to enjoy the gospel. Uh, But it is inevitable that when you have encountered something that has gripped you, you're interested in seeing others gripped by it, like Max, Apple people, right? They're, they're nuts. They're, they, be, they, they buy the religion of Steve Jobs and he's their savior and um, they're evangelists for Apple products. Now that goes the other way. You meet tech geniuses who despise Macs because they're easy to use, user-friendly, and you can't do anything to them. You can't take the battery out of them. You can't really program them. But the guys who know how to program the PC... Who know how to pull it apart and tear the guts out and put it all back together and program it and make it do things. They're like, Mac, I, I can't stand Mac. I want to build my own. And 95% of us are saying, I don't want to build my own. I don't know how to fix my own. I just want something that works. 
So you got people on both sides of the equation and they go at it, right? Because they love what they found. Is there something in your life that you have found that you just find unbelievable? If you're a Christian, it's this. Jesus had mercy on you. Jesus forgave you. Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a cross for you. And you want that story to be known and it becomes a priority um, because Jesus is a priority to you. And so don't get those backwards. Um, You and I need to be near Jesus before uh, we want others to be near Jesus. Now, the second thing I want you to think about is the place of evangelism. What does Jesus tell this man to do? Well, verse 19, he does not permit him to get in the boat with Jesus. But he says to him, go home to your friends. Isn't that crazy? Jesus rejects the request of this man he's just saved. Well, as you read the story, Jesus granted the request of the demons. They said, don't destroy us. Let us go into the pigs. And Jesus said, all right, you guys go into the pigs. Then Jesus um, grants the request of the people who are just so disturbed by what happened and fearful and afraid by what happened that they actually ask Jesus to leave. And he says, okay, I'll leave. And then this guy who he has saved, who now loves him and wants to be with him, unlike everybody else, he says no to. He says, no, you can't come with me. No, you're not going to go with me. I want you to go home. That turns everything upside down, doesn't it? It just seems so outrageous. Now, what's Jesus doing there? Jesus, on the one hand, take a step back and recognize Jesus knows where Jesus is going. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified on a cross. Jesus knows that he's going to die, and he's not going to remain on the earth, and that it's actually better for this man if Jesus should die, be raised from the dead, and send the Holy Spirit into our hearts and even into the heart of this man. He knows there's something better than being with Jesus on earth during Jesus's earthly ministry. It's having Jesus by the spirit of God alive in his heart because Jesus died and rose. So Jesus isn't rejecting the man as a disciple. He's just saying, I know that there's something better for you and that it's better for you to go home. And to go home to your family. Um, Now, imagine the conversations when he gets there. He goes home to his family. You can imagine him saying things like, I was really screwed up. Some of you were, you were terrified of me. And I did some really nasty things to you. Can you imagine those conversations? How this man might have then been saying things like, I'm sorry. I was out of my mind. Evil was at work in me, and I did some really awful things to you. Now, that works both ways. Can you imagine the conversations back at him? Yeah, we didn't know what to do with you. As parents, we felt helpless, and um, we got frustrated. There were times we were angry at you. We were impatient with you, and we went so far as to have you chained in a graveyard to keep you away from us and our community. Can you imagine those conversations? We wronged you, and you wronged us. I'm sorry, please forgive me, would have been the language of those conversations, at least in this man's heart, 
because he's been forgiven. Can you imagine that? So Jesus tells him to go home and basically saying, go home and restore the relationships that have been broken. Some of us, Jesus is likewise calling to go home. What is the place of evangelism in your heart? It it may not be out there across the ocean. It may be with your mom and your dad. Because for years you have offended them, lied to them, disrespected them, and you need to go and apologize and say, please forgive me, I was wrong. Or maybe you need to go to a former girlfriend or boyfriend and ask them to forgive you for the the ways that you treated them that were wrong. Maybe you need to go back to your siblings and say, I'm sorry that I despised you. Please forgive me. The place to start, it may be going home tonight and thinking through how have I treated my roommate, my sweet mate, and saying, Jesus had mercy on my soul and he forgave all my sin. I'm so sorry for my sin against you. Or I forgive you for your sin against me. Home is always the hardest place to see the gospel at work. It makes us uncomfortable. It will always be easier in your mind for you to travel overseas and share the gospel boldly with people you do not know than to turn right around and share it with the people you do know. Because they know all your faults and they have to live with your continuing faults and it's humbling. Not everybody's called to be a missionary to a foreign land. Jesus doesn't say, come with me and go across the seas. He says, go home. And not all of you are called to be a missionary to a foreign land. Not everybody's called to be a full-time Christian worker who raises money to go other places to do the work of ministry. It's not even the highest calling, we could say. It's not like it's the highest calling. It's simply one calling among many to be a, a missionary to a foreign place or a missionary at home. Um, it's a great thing, don't get me wrong, to be called to be a pastor. I got called to be a pastor. Um, I'm a missionary in Northwest Arkansas. It's also a great thing to be called to be a teacher or a banker or a business person or a mother or a lawyer or a nurse or a plumber. Missions is not the highest calling in life. If God calls you to go overseas and be a missionary, then go. But it doesn't mean you'll be closer to Jesus because you go. You can be, it's, in fact, did we not see the last time we were together by the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus, the, the, the Bible students of the Old Testament and their hatred of Jesus, that it's dangerous to be around the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good for your soul. Um, And so we're not all called to be full-time Christian workers, and it's not wrong for you to be called to a job in the world. This is the wonderful thing that Martin Luther brought at the time of the Protestant Reformation, when the height of spirituality was believed to be those who were in the monasteries and the convents, those who had separated themselves from the world and given themselves full-time to fasting and poverty and work of the church. And and, uh, Martin Luther restored the idea of calling that it is just as dignifying before the Lord to be a plumber for Jesus as it is to be a Bible scholar for Jesus. Um, What would the world be like without good plumbers? 
Really? What would the world be like without good chefs? What would the world be like without good engineers? The world is a better place. It's a glorious thing. And when you do it well for the glory of Jesus, all the more. But it will not make you any closer to Jesus to be called into full-time Christian service or go on mission trips. You can be far from Jesus and do the work of ministry. I know that full well. Um, So um, your calling right now is to be what? Most every one of you in here anyway, a a university student, undergrad, a graduate student. Um, By and large, that's what you've been called to. And what I want to say to you this uh, about the way you think about ministry here at the University of Arkansas is not to think this way. RUF, or or the the university is is not a pretext for evangelism. Uh, it's it's um, in RUF. We believe you're really called to be a student, like really called to be one. God has you here, paying money to be a student. Go be a good student for Jesus. Learn well what your professors are teaching you, and you or your parents are paying good money for. Get trained and equipped to serve Jesus in whatever calling it is that you've been called to so that for a lifetime you can serve well, mastering something, having dominion on the earth under King Jesus and being really good at something for his glory. Um, In other words, you're not just here paying a bunch of money to go to school so that you can come to Bible studies and become a great evangelist and ignore your coursework, sleeve through your classes, but then try to pigeonhole your professor and have great gospel conversations. I mean, what an awful witness for you to be a bad student, sleep through classes, and then try to tell them about how wonderful God is and how much difference he's made in your life. Likewise with your peers. Now, none of us live anything in life perfectly. I understand that. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you, but you understand um, what I'm trying to get at about your calling. You may not be where you want to be, This man was told to go home and he wanted to be with Jesus on a boat. But you are exactly where God wants you to be to serve him right now. The place we want to be is not always the best place for our souls. The place where we are is God's best place for us right now. If we believe that God is being good to us right now which requires you to believe that, of course, God's being good to you. He wouldn't be anything other than good to you. He nailed his own son to a cross for you. He's not holding out. So God's best place for us, as J.C. Ryle says, is where we are kept most humble, most taught our own sinfulness, drawn most to the Bible and to prayer, led most to live by faith, in Jesus and not by sight. And that may mean you're called to hard places, to hard things. Um, this man was told, no, go home. And um, evangelism begins at home. Third thing is the message of evangelism. What does Jesus tell him to say? Tell them, Jesus says, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It's really not more complicated than that. I don't have to give you a 10 point or a 6 point 
or a four-point outline of the gospel that you can memorize so you have a canned presentation that you can dump on somebody. You don't need a canned presentation, whether it's a cross chart, like we like in RUF, or the bridge chart illustration that many missions groups teach, or some you know, point-by-point memorized thing that you can then dump on somebody. You don't need any of that. Has the Lord had mercy on your soul? Do you know that you've been forgiven? Do you know what it costs Jesus to bring that home to you? You have all that you need to open your mouth and declare the praiseworthiness of God. In fact, the, the message itself is far more important than the method. Jesus doesn't give him a method. He gives him a message. And the Holy Spirit isn't bound by right or wrong approaches. Right? And we might, we might say it's not wise, it's not even good to deface public property by writing trust Jesus on, in spray paint on overpasses. Right? We might even say for many people that's a turn off. Look at those Christians defacing public property. But can God use that? Undoubtedly. Does that mean we ought to do that? Undoubtedly not. It's like these foolish Christians who give their tip to their waitress as a gospel track booklet instead of cash. You've heard of this, right? I have a friend who worked at a local area restaurant. He worked in, um, as a waiter and they always, the waiters always could tell when their tip was going to be low. It was the people that prayed publicly for their meal before they ate it. Crazy! Do we not love people? Um, do we not think about it? Anyway, um, I'm a little sidetracked there, but I'm just so frustrated by that. Um, you don't need a method. You need a message in your heart. You need, to, you need to know in your heart that you were once blind, but now you see. That you were dead, but now, that you're, now you're alive. You were an orphan wandering far from God, and he came and he got you and he brought you home and made you his child. That Jesus lived for you the life you should have lived but haven't, so that you could be right with God by his obedience, not yours. That Jesus died for you and suffered the just curse of God that sin deserves so that you could be released a prisoner set free if God can save this guy God can save you God can save you God can save anybody so you don't need a program for evangelism. RUF doesn't have to run you through a 16-week program. You need a message you think your soul dies without. Um, so I would say to you this with regard to the message of evangelism. Show people that you are a needer of mercy, not a doer of morality. And we believe in doing morality. We believe in Jesus changing us to make us more like himself. But what people need is to know that God is merciful to the ungodly, to the 
unrighteous. Not a God who's for those who have gotten their act together. So highlight that in your life. Not by going out and doing wrong and boasting of how wonderful it is to be forgiven. But stop thinking that if you just got your life together and everyone could see that, then they'd really be drawn to Jesus. I've got to stop thinking at my house. If I could just get my front yard clean of toys and my garage clean of litter and tools and messes, then my neighbors would really be impressed and ask me about Jesus. But maybe what I need to do is when I see my neighbor, tell them I appreciate their patience with us. We're a big family with lots of bikes strewn all over our neighborhood. And apologize when we leave them in their front yard. Or when I drip oil from my car on the road because I, my car drips oil. Or because I've not checked on them for months at a time. And when I see them have my face light up and say, it's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm sorry I haven't talked to you for months. Um, in other words... Remind people how stupid and foolish and ignorant and awful you are. And own it. And Jesus had mercy on you. Imagine that. Because he loves sinners. That's appealing. People are not going to come and talk to you about their need for Jesus if they think you think you're better than them. But show them that you're screwed up. They might be willing to tell you how screwed up they are. And that might open a door of opportunity to talk about the healer of our souls. Um, the message of evangelism is Jesus. God had mercy on me. And the success of evangelism. Uh, the story ends. The man goes away and he begins to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled, it says. Now, don't think by that, that means that everyone came to faith in Jesus. That's not the way the Bible uses the word marvel. They were in awe because of the life change in this guy. But it doesn't say anything about how many people were therefore one, two, believing in Jesus and his mercy. The Bible at this point right here is disinterested in that question, but it's the question that we're often interested in. Well, who came to faith because you testified. We don't know how successful it was. That's not important, evidently, to the story. God is ultimately in charge of that. Our confidence is in what? The Holy Spirit who uses the message and works in people. There might have been 3,000 people who believed, like there were on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came with power. 3,000 people believed and entered the church. Or there might have been only one or two, or nobody initially. It doesn't matter. Jesus is in charge of those things anyway. And so as you think about evangelism, take the weight of success off your shoulders. It doesn't belong there. It's not yours to carry. There are opportunities everywhere to talk about the Lord and his mercy. And there aren't two kinds of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians. The world is much more complex than that. People are much more complex than that. What do I mean by that? Aren't there Christians and non-Christians? Well, yeah. But it's not that simple. In Jesus' day, there were all kinds of people. There were pious Jews 
who just needed to hear the name of the Messiah because they were waiting for him and then they would believe. But there were also legalistic Jews who needed to know more than rules that God is a face, God is a heart. And there were Jews who didn't give a rip at all about Judaism. And there were Gentiles in Jesus' day, educated in Roman mythology. And some of them believed it, and some of them didn't. And there were uneducated Gentiles. There are all kinds, in other words, there's a continuum in life of people from, from positive 10 to zero to negative 10. And everybody's somewhere on that continuum, we might say. If positive 10 is the person who believes in Jesus with their whole heart, has full assurance, and is this close to heaven... And negative 10 is the most hardened skeptic imaginable. Everybody's somewhere on that continuum. Some people need just a little more information and they'll come to faith. Some people need uh, to just have the rawness of their hardened skepticism um, chipped away at through the warmth of being loved by a real Christian so that decades down the road, they'll be closer to being able to even hear that there is a true God in Jesus. Um, Do you understand? The goal isn't to sort of flip the switch in somebody's life and they go from negative 10 to positive 10. The goal for us is just to be used by God if he should be so pleased to see somebody move one step closer to believing in Jesus and to understanding his love, to seeing people move in the right direction. That's why I would say to you with regard to success in evangelism that you and I have got to learn to be patient with people. God is patient with people. You know that creation took days, but he could have done it in the snap of his fingers. You know that it took thousands of years for life on this earth before God sent his son Jesus. God could have sent him like that. The day Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden. But he did not. He promised the Redeemer, but he didn't send the Redeemer. Jesus died and rose and went to heaven. He could have come back a thousand years ago. He could have come back a hundred years ago, but he didn't. Why? Because God is patient. And God is patiently bringing good news to lost people. And you and I can be patient with those same people. And so we ought to begin with prayer. We ought to begin with prayer. Ask God to do what he delights to do. Ask him to have mercy on the people that you care about. Ask me to do what I delight to do and I will jump at the opportunity to do it. Ask me to take my wife on a date while you watch my kids. We're in, okay? I had a friend ask me if, I, if, if it was okay if I, if I wanted to go. He would fly me to Colorado and pay for my week to ride four-wheelers with a bunch of friends in the National Forest. That was not hard to turn down. I didn't turn that down. I'm not a fool. And I wanted to do it. God takes no pleasure, the Bible says, in the death of the wicked, but he delights to show mercy. So let's begin at least in evangelism by asking him to do what he delights to do
for the people we care about? Is there mercy in your heart? Then you want others to taste the sweetness of that mercy too. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you in this room. Um, We may not even have tasted your your kindness and mercy in a way that we've understood yet. I pray that you would bring that home to our hearts. And all of us who are Christians have been weak and uh, fearful and afraid and tongue-tied, and we've given every excuse imaginable um, to speak of your mercy with others, even to pray about it. I pray you'd forgive us for even that sin and teach us to love people with the love that you have for people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a response to the Lord.